reading tonight will come from Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 9. Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 9. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statues and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? And as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments are, or I'm sorry, judgment as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and grandchildren. Good evening. We are in part number three of a Sunday night series we're doing on the problem of evil and how God restrains evil in the world today. We're doing this for a couple of reasons. One, um, the topic of evil, heinous acts and evil activity is pretty active right now in our culture. Uh, rightly so. There's been a lot of activity, a lot of things taking place in our world that many people, regardless of their faith affiliation, would call things evil. The loss of life, um, hatred towards other groups, um, a lot of disdain, and a lot of frustration, people are calling evil, and rightly so. And so the problem of evil is very present in our culture today. Um, but what most people don't have is a reason to explain why evil is existing and what are we supposed to do about evil. It's funny, um, I, it's more and more our time in this uh, world has been called the information age. You know, you can find anything online. And slowly but surely, I think it's transitioning from the information age to the opinion age. You know, everybody's got an opinion on everything. And um, just because we have access to a keyboard and uh, an outlet, we sometimes think that our opinion is educated. Well, everybody's got an opinion about how to solve evil. But what's funny is it's just not really working. So we're talking about what the Bible has to say about the problem of evil, how it's restrained, and ultimately how it's solved. Um, in and of itself, that's important. There's another reason we are. Um, in just about a week, the Warren Apologetic Center, a week from this Tuesday, uh, it, which is an apologetic center based out of Parkersburg, West Virginia, is hosting a debate between um, Alex Rosenberg, who is a professor at Duke University, um, and Ralph Gilmore, who is a professor at Fried Hardeman University, on the existence of God in relation to the question of evil. And the question goes like this. If God is all-powerful and all-good, how in the world can there be evil? So if there is evil, then there can't be a God that is either powerful enough to stop it or good enough to care about that problem. And those two guys will take on that question and uh, uh, answer that question for you uh, to the best of their ability. I want to invite you to that. So here's where we are so far. We talked about on night one uh, the problem of evil. What evil is? Remember Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20? The prophet gives us probably the most simple definition. Woe to those who call 
good evil and call evil good. It's the most basic definition of evil. Evil is uh, the opposite of good or where good is not there. And so evil is a life and a presence without God. Well, what causes evil? We saw in Genesis chapter 3 the story of Eve being deceived by Satan that evil is first and foremost a product of human rebellion when humans rebel against the way that they were designed to live that is what that's the root of evil when we reject the way that we're supposed to live but we also recognize that the cause of evil is not just human rebellion but there is a force a spiritual force that is persuading people to rebel against God and that force we call is not just an inanimate object but it's Satan this angel that had um, at the right hand of God at one time became very envious of God wanted God's glory wanted to be the one in charge and so therefore he fell out of grace with God because of that now he wants to persuade people to reject the glory of God so they can have the glory of themselves and we finished with this question well what are we supposed to do in light of evil well what should we do because there's evil in the world well the first thing we do is we anchor ourselves in the promise the promise of God that there will be a world someday in which evil does not exist and secure in that hope we then fight with all of our might against evil as Jesus prayed um, father your will be done on earth just like it's being done in heaven and we partake in that prayer when we fight against the darkness and ultimately at the end we say in the meantime between the glory of an evilless world coming and where we are today we use the restraints that God has given us to restrain evil. Uh, God has given humanity four things to restrain evil. We talked last week about the first one, and that is the human conscience. The human conscience. The conscience in the human is that internal, God-given awareness of what is right and what is wrong. And every human has been given this conscience from God to know the difference between right and wrong but what we see in the scripture is when we disable that conscience or sear that conscience or make it callous so that it no longer has feelings we render that restraint useless and we see a lot of people in the world whose conscience does not bother them when they violate what should be right to do what is wrong well tonight we're going to talk about the second restraint that God has given to us you'll see an order by the time we get to the end that it starts very individual and it grows uh, progressively. Uh, we started with the individual conscience. Tonight we're going to talk about the restraint of evil that God has given to us in the form of the family. The family. The structure of the family was a gift from God for many reasons. The place in which God wanted children to be raised, spouses to be in covenant with each other, and for life to be lived in the unit of the family. And this was given to God, uh, given by God to us for a lot of reasons, but specifically that parents might raise children collaboratively, collaboratively together so that children would know the difference between right and wrong and ultimately have a moral compass that points them towards God. That was the objective. So we're going to talk tonight not just about the family, but specifically about parents and raising children, what Scripture has to say about that. And you know, God actually doesn't have a lot to say about the idea of parenting in the Bible. Um, I think if you go and really count the words and get pretty specific with it, there's about 250 words total 
in the Bible that address specifically from God to parents on how to parent. Uh, to put that in, in um, context for you, there's about 770,000 words in the Bible. So 770,000 words, 250 of them are from God when he's telling us exactly how to parent. Now, to be fair to God, a major role that he plays in our relationship to, to him is a father to us. So you could argue that the majority of the story of the Bible is how a father interacts with his children, especially those that go wayward and how to win them back. But specifically speaking, God speaks to parents in just a few key texts. The one that I want us to see tonight is Ephesians 4, or sorry, Ephesians 6, verse 4. One verse. You probably know it, some of you in here, but Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Rather, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, this text for us, what's so great about it is it's incredibly simple and it's very straightforward. And because it's simple and it's straightforward, it allows us to walk through each part of this particular sentence so that we can get the fullness of the understanding as best we can to understand uh, how God wants parents to interact with children so that we might raise children in an effort to restrain evil in society. So we're going to do five things, really simple. Uh, they'll go pretty quick. We'll see the backdrop of this text, the, the background of the text, the address, who the, who the text is talking to, the object, what the text is about, the command, and then the final goal or the objective. It's uh, pretty simple. That's the, the way the scripture lays out for us. Let's start with the backdrop, okay? Um, there are only four books in all of the 66 in the Bible that address parenting specifically. You have Deuteronomy. Uh, Jason read a little bit in chapter 4. Chapter 6 has a part in Deuteronomy. is the main one, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. You have the book of Proverbs. You have Ephesians. And you have Colossians. And Ephesians and Colossians are what you might call sister letters. They were, they're very similar letters. Paul wrote them at the same time and sent them to different places. Uh, they, they, they collaborate together, but they say a lot of the same things. If you follow Colossians and you follow Ephesians, you see them kind of saying the same thing. And so you've got Deuteronomy, some Proverbs, and then Ephesians and Colossians. And that's it. And Proverbs, for the most part, uh, has a very standalone kind of address to parents. So it's not a full chapter or a full section of the, of the Proverbs. It's rather, um, you know, sparse drops of, of information about parents. It's a collection of wise sayings. It's not written with larger thought units like a full paragraph. But the other three are very much written that way. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, l let me give you a little background there. Deuteronomy chapter 6 you get the fullest explanation, the fullest passage in the Bible from God writing to parents on how to raise their kids. And he talks about in that Deuteronomy chapter 6 about how we're supposed to uh, teach them the ways of the Lord and raise them up in that particular way. But Deuteronomy 6 is instruction that follows Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, what you get is the Ten Commandments at the very beginning 
And at the, end of the, at the end of the Ten Commandments, you see God teaching us at the end of chapter 5 how to actually keep those Ten Commandments. This is not just for parents. This is for all people that would have a covenant with God. Here are the Ten Commandments. Here's how to keep them. At the end of chapter 5, he says things like, you and I need to have a heart that's right with God, that desires to obey the commandments. And he says that we ought not to turn to the right hand or the left hand. He says that we ought to fear the Lord and obey Him. We ought to know God and we ought to love God. And all of these instructions are to the individual. His or her personal relationship with God is based upon us following this instruction. And then God addresses the parent and He says this simply, let your relationship with God be so pervasive that it dictates how you parent your children. Do you see that? He spends so much time in chapter 5 saying, here are the Ten Commandments, and here is how you, individual, male or female, obey these commandments, have a heart that's right with God. Love Him, fear Him. Don't turn to the right or the left. Be serious about your relationship with the Father. Get that thing right. And when your relationship with God is so pervasive, it naturally guides you into how to parent your children. Everybody with me? Does that make sense? Okay, Colossians chapter 3, we find the instruction in verses, um, it's about verse 18, where he begins to instruct the parents, especially the fathers, to the children. But if you go look at the whole thing in chapter 3, it starts where he says that you and I are raised with Christ, and we ought to seek those things which are above where Christ is, and we ought to go find that hidden life that's in Jesus Christ. And then he says that we ought to put off the old man, and put on the new man. That, that we ought to get rid of the old man of sin and put on the new man of righteousness. That's the instruction. And then he says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't wear them out. Now it makes sense for Paul to be able to be so simple there because he's coming off this instruction where he's talking to believers, male and female, saying, listen, seek, uh, seek Christ where he is at the right hand of God, Find your life in Christ, put off the old man, put on the new man, and as you do that, you'll be equipped as a parent. Ephesians 6 is the very same way. If you go all the way back to chapter 5, starting in verse 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 17 is where the thought begins, the whole section. It has everything to do with putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And then chapter 5 says that we ought to walk in the newness of this new man. And in chapter uh, 5, verse 22, he starts talking about how this looks in the family. When he says that husbands and wives ought to mutually submit to each other. And then husbands ought to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And wives ought to respect and submit to their husbands. Now watch. When we put off the old man and put on the new man, and we walk in the newness of Christ, and we come into family, and we mutually respect and, and submit to each other, wanting what's best for the other, in the spousal relationship. And husbands are willing to make their joy the joy of their wife. So their wife always has joy. And their wife is willing to submit and respect the husband. Then Paul just says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Raise them up the right way. The reason Paul is able to be so simple in his instruction to parents and how to raise their kids is because it's based upon how we are as Christians. Perhaps the Bible doesn't have a huge list of do's and don'ts in parenting, 
Because if a person is filled with the Spirit of God, walks by the Spirit, is led by the Spirit, lives by the Spirit, and is bearing the fruit of the Spirit, they'll have the things necessary to be the kind of parent that God wants them to be. Does that make sense why it's so simple, uh, why, why the Bible has such a small amount of words about parenting? Because it's really about, are you right with God? And if you're right with God, you're going to be equipped to be the kind of parent God wants you to be. You'll at least know where to go and how to get the right kind of information, right? Okay, so that's the backdrop. What about the address? Who is this text written to? Well, our key, uh, the key text here, it says fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. So who's it written to? Fathers, right? The Greek word is the patres, which is the term that refers actually, it, it, it's written in the male form, but it's the term that means um, both male and female working together. It doesn't exclude the mother from the responsibility, but it doesn't alleviate the man from the leadership responsibility. So when he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, what he's talking about is the unit of parenting. Not ignoring that men are required to take the leadership, to set the temperature in the home, that it's a godly home. Men, you are called to do that. And so when Paul says fathers, that is a divine poke in the chest to say, it's on you to set the temperature in the home. Of what kind of home do you have? But this also doesn't exclude the mother at all. This is the parental unit. But what Paul is doing is stirring up the responsibility of the man to set the tone for the home of how it's going to be in that place. But in that word, what he's calling to is the, both the father and the mother collaboratively working together in how they raise their children. Again, the context can give you greater understanding. You know, the apostles sitting there trying to poke men to get them ready to take the responsibility they have to lead their wife, to lead their children in the way that God wants them to do. Both in Ephesians and Colossians, this command follows instructions to the husband. So when he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, when he's calling on the man to set the temperature, of the spiritual temperature in the home, this, and, and take up the leadership in the home, this immediately is following the text, both when he says in Ephesians and Colossians, that men are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. So what's the model of leadership? What is the example of leadership that God is calling men to follow? The man who is willing to lay down everything in his life for the good of the people that he loves so much. That's leadership. In the, that's the model of leadership in the Bible. There's a lot of different words, a lot of different ways that people describe leadership in the home. It's been often described as like a heavy hand or a strong fist or, you know, sort of run this show. We see leadership in Jesus Christ as a man who's willing to lay down his life for the good of those that are near him. And you and I as uh, men need to be willing to do that. But this address to parents is to both the mother and the father to work together as a team. And it's calling fathers to make sure that happens. All right, so we've got the backdrop. We see why. We've got the address, who it's written to. What's the object? You tell me. I want to see you guys remember, I know you probably don't appreciate grammar class being inserted into the sermon, but let's see how this goes. What's the object? Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. What's the object? What's the object of this sentence? Come on, Terry, you tell us. Do you know? Are you guys all afraid to say it? Who's the English teacher here? 
afraid to be wrong, give it a shot. This is a grace-filled community. What is it, Anna? You guys think she's right? She is. <laughs> that was funny. What an interesting experiment. <laughs> like, in church, afraid to be wrong. Guys, we got a problem. <laughs> we're in church, we're afraid to be wrong. We got a problem. All right. Think about this for a minute. Who's the object of the sentence here? Children. Who's the object of your parenting? All right, you got the point? Children. We've got an epidemic problem in our culture today where people are raising their children because it's really about them. That they're pushing their children out, you know, to do certain things, to perform in a certain way, to be involved in certain activities, to accomplish certain goals for the reputation and the image of the parent, not the child. It's not for the good of the child. We're, we're at epidemic levels where we're using our children to promote the brand of me, the self-brand that I have. The object of this sentence, fathers do not provoke, that's the verb, children to wrath, is telling us a greater message that the object of all of your parenting is your children the focus, the attention, the object. It is not your reputation, your image, what people think of you, how they perform, what they look like, what they do, what they're involved in, how impressive they are, how they behave. Boy, this is uh, pretty sobering for me and probably hopefully for you as well uh, when we look back at some of the things that we probably get disappointed in our children for, get frustrated with our children about, uh, have expectations for them, um, just check yourself on that, that the object of parenting is the children. It has to be our children, not our reputation, our image, or our pride. All right, uh, so the backdrop, the address is to parents. The object is children. What's the command? There's both a negative and a positive command. The negative command is do not provoke them. Do not provoke your children to wrath. Colossians says do not exasperate your children. What does this mean? Don't, don't provoke your children to wrath. What does that mean? It means don't irritate them or frustrate them. Don't stimulate them. Don't incite them. Don't stir them up to be people of wrath. Okay? That's interesting, right, Paul? Well, how do I do that? Don't, don't, don't incite them to be people of wrath. Don't, don't exasperate them so that they are filled with rage and bitterness and fury and anger and wrath. How do we do that, right? Let me give you a few examples. When our children do wrong and we nag them but don't punish them. When we're focused on their failed perfection and not interested in their progress. When we spoil them and we make everything in our world about them. When you make your entire world, parents, think about this, your ecosystem that you involve in, which involves you and your spouse having to have conversations sometimes, having to do household chores, having to take time to pay the bills, having to go to work. When, when your world is completely about them, you're setting them up for anger and for bitterness and for wrath. When we fail to instruct them on how to live and let them be the leaders of how they live, when they're children, when we give them free reign to determine what's going to happen in our life and how they're going to live, we're setting them up 
to be children of wrath. When we praise them for superficial things and ignore things like character. When we don't bother them with responsibilities and chores but give them allowance constantly. When we don't ask them anything, don't, don't have any responsibilities on them, don't call them to be in, involved in anything in the household, just giving to them. We're setting them up to be children of wrath. When they mess up, we dive in and we rescue them and don't let them experience consequence. We set them up for children of wrath. When we make decisions for them, instead of letting them work through the process of thinking, and yes, even possibly making a mistake, but learning the process of making decisions and how to grow from them. And we'll make children of wrath when we're openly critical of other people. Listen, when we are openly critical constantly of other people in front of our children, we train them to grow up and become judgmental and self-righteous where they always believe that they are right and everyone around them is wrong. We've trained them to do that. You see, when we do these things and many others, these are just some examples, what we're doing is giving our children an environment that cannot be replicated and one that serves their desire to be selfish. You see, this is an unstable world. When they encounter a teacher that is disappointed in their performance, when they encounter a administrator that doesn't want them to behave a certain way, when they have a coach that has instruction for them or a roommate that gets annoyed with them, a professor that doesn't give them the curved grade so that it becomes better, or the boss that is not happy with their performance, or the spouse that's frustrated. And those people that come into your child's life that don't treat your child like you treat your child, your child's going to be angry about it. Because the world that they've been taught is it's all about me and everything gets fixed for me and I have no responsibility. And when we send them out into the world not ready to face other people that aren't going to treat them like that, automatically they're angry, they're bitter, they're frustrated. We're raising children of wrath when we don't prepare them for what life's really going to be like. We make the, when we create an environment that will not be replicated by anybody else in the world, we're creating children of wrath. So the positive thing is this, that we are to discipline them and instruct them. Discipline means training with a purpose. Uh, Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those who he loves, means that he shapes a person with the objective behind his discipline. So when he punishes or disciplines, he has a goal in mind. Discipline is the shaping and training of, and raising up of a child into the life and heart that God wants them to have. A child left to him or herself will not do this on their own. You leave a child completely to themselves, they will not do this job on their own. They won't do it. Proverbs 29, 15 says, a child left alone will bring disgrace to his mother. And then finally, he says, we provide instruction. Constantly teaching with a view of consequences for not obeying. Being people that teach our children how to live. What's the objective? Paul says it this way in Ephesians, that we ought to do it in the Lord, or Colossians says it this way, that they not lose heart and become discouraged in the Lord. You see, Deuteronomy says it this way, that they not forget who the Lord is when they grow up. The goal of shaping our children morally is that evil might be restrained in at least our part of society. But even more, 
that they may grow up and learn to enjoy the very things that God enjoys. If we don't train them to have joy in what God enjoys, when they grow up and are left to themselves, they won't find pleasure in joy in what God enjoys. And ultimately, they won't find joy in God. That's the goal. And so for us to be the kind of parents that we need to be, we've got to first be the kind of followers of Christ that we need to be. So if you're a parent here, um, I would encourage you to think seriously. If you want to continue to grow as a parent, we've got to first look at how am I following Christ and how am I growing closer to becoming like Him and knowing the Father through Him. And when we do that, we'll look at our children and realize that they came from God. They're His. They're brought to us to, more to train us than to train them, right? To change us, to grow us, so that we might give them the gift of understanding how to live right and wrong and how to pursue the very things of God. And that's our opportunity and that's our obligation to restrain evil in the world and to raise up children who want to love and serve God. And so if you're a person who is not yet loving or serving God, maybe not yet a follower of Christ or not really following in the way that you ought to, um, our invitation is always open to that. But if you need encouragement, um, fellowship, strength, just someone to talk to, find one of our elders. Uh, they will plug you in with some people. Find one of the, 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 if you're a lady out there, find one of our wonderful women out here that just love to spend time with you. Those that have raised children, they'll tell you all the mistakes they made. They're willing will tell you that. And they'll encourage you that you're probably not making as many mistakes as you probably think you're making. And they'll really lift your spirit. So um, I would encourage us to really collaborate on this idea of parenting together. But let's stand and sing. If you have a need, we can, uh, you can come now.